So, <clears throat> I've got a confession to make. Um, how many of you guys like bananas? Okay. Um, you know what it's like to eat a perfect banana? It's a worship-provoking thing. Um, this week, I ate the perfect banana. And... Uh, I wasn't intending to eat it, but I walked into the kitchen and it was in the bowl and it was calling out to me. And it was calling my name and, and I actually ate two, two perfect bananas uh, back to back. Uh, but I looked at the banana and it's, it's, it's yellow. You ever noticed? It's very yellow. But the perfect banana is not yellow. In my house it is. <laughs> it's yellow. It's very yellow. <laughs> And you ever notice how ingenious the packaging is? Have you noticed this? And you just peel it down. And it just, it's perfect. It's like it was designed that way. Oh, maybe, I don't know, it's perfect. And then, and then that aroma, it kind of wafts up into your sinus cavity. And it's, it's just, and then you bite it, right? And it's the, the texture and the taste, it's just... You know, and then it happened. This is what happens when a preacher eats a banana. Worship happened. And I started thinking, banana, what a great idea. Right? What a great idea that God created bananas. And it just escalated. I don't know if this happens. Does this happen to you guys in your day-to-day life? That you just do something simple and quite unexpectedly, uh, you're worshiping God. Um, I didn't expect to worship God when I walked into the kitchen. I just was a little hungry. And bam! I'm eating the perfect banana and I'm worshiping God. Does this happen to you? It should happen to you. Uh, Maybe not about bananas, but about any simple pleasure in life. Because any pleasure that you have in this life is from the benevolent hand of your Creator God. Uh, They didn't happen by accident. Uh, they are the purpose and the will of God. Now, I know much of mankind would confidently assert that that banana was, like you and me, some random result of a mindless, unguided process. Um, A random, cataclysmic, cosmic chance event. Um, But you know, my mind, the way my mind works, when I see the banana, I realize there has to be a sufficient cause for the banana. Right? Do you guys think like this? There must be a sufficient cause for a banana. It just didn't, bam, pop out of the vacuum of the cosmos. Although, intelligent men believe these things now. It's shocking what men with uh, degrees believe. Uh, It's utterly shocking. Of course, we, we realize that naturalism is a religion. It is dogma that has bled into science. We understand that. But, um, men actually believe that everything came from nothing. I I love how R.C. Sproul talks about this. He's an American theologian, very well known. Uh, He says it's like a rabbit out of the hat. Without the rabbit, without the hat, without the magician. Men actually believe bananas came from nowhere. Uh, And of course, the banana is a metaphor for everything else 
in the universe. Professing to be wise, someone tell me. Professing to be wise, what? They have become, tell me, fools. Fools. You can't eat a perfect banana and not worship. If you eat a perfect banana and you don't worship, you're flirting with foolishness. Or maybe you're just indifferent today. Or maybe you just have more important things on your mind today. But I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. <laughs> he says these are messages. The perfect banana, it's a message from the one who made the perfect banana. And uh, yeah, so that's what happens when a preacher eats a banana. I couldn't help but think of A.W. Pink. He's a British... Um, a British theologian, author, preacher. Um, as I savored the banana, I was thinking of his words, God not only gives us our senses, He gives us what, anybody know? Gratifies the senses. God did not have to give us taste buds. We could be sustained just from a sheer level of energy. We could be sustained and food could be relatively tasteless. We could, But God... Gives, God gave me taste buds and I'm enjoying this banana and I can't believe this wonderful flavor in my mouth. Um, God not only gives us our senses, He gives us what gratifies them. I know you're saying, Jim, and I'm like this sometimes and I'm sorry, but you're saying, Jim, what's this got to do with James chapter 4, 11 and 12? And I think it has a lot to do uh, with the text, and I'll try to make the connection for you. I think if you look at the context here, uh, from the last, from the, from the, really all the way through from chapter 4, verse 1, we're into verse 11. If you look at the, the context preceding and the context subsequent to the, our text tonight, I think it has a lot to do, what I'm trying to say, my, my introduction has a lot to, to do with the text. James is still talking about uh, the wisdom that comes down from God. It's James 3.17. You may remember several weeks ago we talked about that verse at length. Uh, and the Scripture has been saying to us, we've been pulling from the Scripture, that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. And so James has been talking about this God-pleasing wisdom that true believers incorporate into their life. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And it made me think as I was preparing this week, Exodus 19 and 20. You remember, you remember the story where uh, the Lord uh, came down on Mount Sinai and there was lightning and fire and thick smoke and the mountain quaked violently and the Lord spoke with thunder. Even Moses was full of fear and trembling uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21. And the people begged that no further word be spoken to them. In fact, the people said, you go talk to Him. You go talk to Him, Moses. They were afraid. And You may remember this. Moses said this beautiful thing. Uh, Exodus 20, 20. He said, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. I love this verse. 
We talked a couple of weeks ago about fearing God appropriately. Uh, there are two ditches. There, there's always two theological ditches on the side on the on the side of each uh, biblical truth. But to fear God biblically and appropriately, and I think I think this verse uh, echoes that. Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, that you may not sin. Do not be afraid, but fear the Lord. I think this is a perfect commentary on what the Bible says to us about fearing God in the right way. So in addition to the wisdom from above, James is still talking about God-pleasing humility that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? God-pleasing humility, it's Verse 7, in submission to God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Verse 8, it's drawing near to God. 8 and 9, it's repenting of our sin. And verse 10, it's humbling ourselves before the Lord. So, all of this (laughs) in the kitchen Tuesday afternoon with the banana. And I'm worshiping this God. And I'm not afraid, but I fear Him in the right way. I'm not afraid of this God, but I fear Him. What an awesome God who speaks 400 plus billion galaxies into existence. I made the point last week. You haven't evolved from anything quite so glamorous as a chimp. Before God got involved in your life and my life, I was just simply disassembled particles of dust. That's all I was. That's all you were. And God has brought His people from dust to glory. How can you not worship this awesome God? How can you not be in awe? How can you not eat His banana and give thanks? It's why I always give you opportunity every at the beginning of every service to give praise and give thanks. How can you not feel the emotion of love for your loved ones or even for God Himself and not realize the emotion of love is simply a gift of God? Everything's a gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. And you and I, I know you're guilty because I'm guilty. We are so, by comparison... Thankless. You know, I say it to you a lot and I'm going to move on. But we all concentrate on the three things that aren't just like we want them, right? Or you, maybe you're like that, maybe you're not. Maybe you're real, real spiritual. Maybe you, got it, maybe you got it going on really good. But I have a tendency, if I let my mind, my mind will go to the three things that I wish were different instead of concentrating on the one million and one things that are perfect in my life. Like a banana. It's so delicious. (laughs) So, um, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's what James is saying to us. The connection I'm trying to make here is, is is part of that wisdom is understanding that everything you have and everything you are is by His good hand. And consequently, you're a thankful human being. 
You're a thankful human being. Every good thing in your life you're thankful for. And even the hard stuff, as we become biblically literate, even the hard stuff, we're thankful for the hard stuff. Because God's doing a good thing in the hard stuff. On your hardest day, God's doing a good thing. It's like cheating, isn't it? Isn't it like cheating to be a Christian? I mean, really. It is, in my view. It's almost like cheating. So Moses is right. As we ponder God, we should not be afraid, but fear Him. This is the beginning of wisdom. I think it's a big part of what James is saying to us here in the text. He's reminding us that bad theology hurts people. You've heard me say this many times. It's one of my you know, mantras. What does it mean bad theology hurts people? Non-biblical theology hurts people because it causes people to think wrongly about God. It causes people to pick up a perfect banana and eat it and never praise God for it. That's bad theology, beloved. It's bad theology. It's bad theology to wake up in the morning and breathe deeply. Even when you're shaking off the cobwebs, it's bad theology not to realize that every day is a gift. Every breath is a gift. Every time your brain fires, it's a gift. It's all a gift. Isn't this an awesome way to live in perpetual thanksgiving of this awesome Creator God? Do not be afraid, but fear this God who speaks bananas into existence, right? How can you not have some humble fear? Uh, uh, One of the old Puritans says, you know, Thomas, uh, what's his name? Thomas Watson. I love this guy. Uh, Thomas Watson. All the world cannot create a fly. Nobody wants to create a fly, but if they wanted to create a fly, they couldn't create a fly. Only God creates flies. Right? Only God does that. So, James is challenging us to employ the wisdom that comes from above which always drives us to God. It doesn't matter if it's a banana or a wife or a child or a career or a new job. Whatever God is processing through our life, we're processing it by the wisdom of God, which is He is an awesome God. And every good thing in my life comes by Him and through Him and from Him. James has been telling us, uh, and I'm going to get to the verses in a few minutes, but James has been telling us that as Christians we are a conspicuously peculiar lot. It's the one thing that you can't get away from really in all of the New Testament, but James has really been beating the drum. And if we embrace good theology, biblical theology, the wisdom that comes down from above will be informing our lives, and we will be incarnating that wisdom. First and foremost, I have to say, being a thankful people. I know that's not in the text, but it's in my heart, it's in my mind this week, ever since I ate the banana, (laughs) and I was convicted. I don't know how you are, but mm, I do not thank God enough. I bet the same is true of you. So I want to challenge you with that. It's just a personal uh, situation for me this week. 
So the wisdom that's from God, it's a conspicuous wisdom. And let me just give you a brief summary of where we've been in James. Chapter 1, it's how we respond to trials and temptations. Chapter 1 again, it's how we, how we incorporate the Word of God in our life. Chapter 2, uh, we are compassionate and impartial people. Chapter 2 again, it's how uh, we live out our faith in actual deeds. Chapter 3, it's how we employ our tongues and our speech. We're going to talk a lot more about that tonight. In chapter 3, again, it's how we live by the wisdom of God. And as we talked about last week, as we submit to God and humble ourselves before God. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? I think it's verse 12 that got, kind of got me off. It was the springboard that, you know, this big God verse. He's the lawgiver, capital L. He's the judge, capital J. He's the one, capital O. He's God. And the wisdom that comes down from God, it provokes worship. And I was listening to my favorite preacher just a few moments ago. I just like to listen to him. He sometimes helps get the cobwebs swept away in my own mind. But, um, yeah, he was talking about this. He was talking about worship. It's not this. It's not just this. Yes, you come here to honor Jesus Christ, to worship Jesus Christ. Of course you do. We are commanded together together as the people of God. But you realize all of your life is worship. You know this, right? All of your life is worship. All of it is worship. Every single bit of it is worship. If it's not worship, it should be worship. You offer up all of your day to God. It's living by the wisdom that comes from, that comes from above. So, James 4, 11... And 12, if you are practicing God-pleasing humility, you will not speak against your brother. This is the fourth time in the book of James that he's talked about how you're using your tongue as a Christian. He'll bring it up again in chapter 5. He uses brother three times here to, I think, connote and emphasize the fact that we are a family here. You know, when, new, when a new person comes, it's what I tell them. I say, we, if you plug in with us, we'll be your family. We'll be here for you. We'll help you. If you have problems, we'll, we'll try to figure it out with you. If you have a need, we'll try to meet it. We're just, that's what we do here. That's what, that's what real Christians do. We're, we're a family. We're, 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 we're brothers and we're sisters. And God is driving that point home to us in this passage now we know how we're supposed to love one another. Someone tell me. Can you think of the... Is it, can anybody think of what Jesus said in John? I'll just give you a clue. John 13, anybody remember? The Old Testament law said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's good. That's awesome. Jesus took it up a notch. In fact, Jesus took it up way up 
Jesus says, love one another even as I have loved you. Much bigger. And you remember what uh, God says in 1 John about laying your lives down for one another. And I've told you this many times. I like to use that text. It's not talking about martyrdom there. It's talking about laying your life down in love and service to the brethren. God expects His people to, to love one another. And it's supposed to be in our hands. It's not just on our tongue. It's in our hands. It's how we, we give and share and come alongside and encourage and exhort and, and listen and give. And it's all of these things. It's how we love one another. It's Christianity 101. It's just what Christi Christians are supposed to do. And of course, in conjunction with this lofty command of Jesus to love um, each other even as Jesus loved us, we're certainly not supposed to speak against our brother. This is the clear emphasis and focus of the text. First, I want, to, I want to tell you what's not being said here in verse 11. So it's important sometimes to make the distinction about what's not being said. Uh, the New King James Version, the ESV, and the NIV help us to clearly see what is not being said. These three translations render the text this way, Do not speak evil of one another, and the NIV says, brothers, do not slander one another. I think these translations bring some clarity to what God is saying. God is commanding us not to speak evil of a brother or slander a brother. God is not saying that we should not call sin, sin, and challenge our brother or sister on sin that has become known. God's not saying that. God's not saying that. James 4.11 does not negate Matthew 18. I'm going to turn and read Matthew 18. It may be foreign to some of you. Um, famous passage, probably the passage least likely to be read or preached uh, in the modern church. James 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax gatherer. Uh, translation, let him be to you as an un. Believer, how many of you have heard this te this text preached and or practiced? Church discipline, anybody? Okay, it's it's a pretty foreign thing uh, anymore. This church, um, the thing about us, um, we were going to uh, employ church discipline some years ago, but it became unnecessary as the individual left the church. Um, but this church, should the occasion arise, would employ church discipline. And it's what Jesus said. And some people think, well, that's judging. It's what Jesus said. We don't judge because we're superior. What is the focus of church discipline? What is it? Someone tell me. What is the focus of church discipline? Restoration. Restoration. Repentance. And the true believer will. 
The true believer will. The true believer ultimately will repent. And church discipline is simply a vehicle to promote repentance in the life of someone the church loves. It's redemptive. That's the purpose of it. Parenthetically, let me say that um, Matthew 7.1 does not negate Matthew 18. I referenced it just a moment ago. You know, some people say, well, you can't say anything to anyone about anything because that's judging. Well, Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. That's right. The Christian doesn't judge. We don't have the right of condemnation. We don't, we don't condemn anyone, but we do call sin, sin. We love people that much. We love people enough to say, hey brother, I know that you're sinning. It's come to my attention. I'm here to challenge you on that. And I do it in love. That's what it means. You know, I hate this. It's just sloppy biblical interpretation to say, well, you can't say anything about sin because that's judging. That's just completely wrong. We can speak clearly about sin in the culture, and we should speak clearly about sin in the culture. Nobody else is going to talk about sin in the culture except God's people. We don't condemn. We speak the truth, but we do not condemn. I think this is the, the message that the Lord is bringing us to. So let me tell you what God is saying in James chapter 4, verse 11. He's saying Christians do not defame or slander one another. We know this from just secular law. There are laws against what? Slander and defamation. Even the world gets this, right? Even the world gets this. How much more the church of God? God says, refrain from these things. So God hates all sin, but He puts an exclamation point on the sins of speech. Again, if you just quickly read through the book of James, five times God talks about how you use your tongue. Five times in five chapters. God brings it up. So, some of you remember, some of you Bible scholars, you know in the Proverbs, that Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things the Lord says He hates. Some of you probably have them memorized from when you were a little boy or a little girl. Three of them have to do with how you speak. God says, I hate this stuff. One is a lying tongue. God says, I hate a lying tongue. God says, I hate a false witness who utters lies. God says, the one who spreads strife among the brothers, I hate that. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We talked about gossip and, and how many in the church they view gossip as kind of a second tier kind of sin. Well, we know we shouldn't do it, but it's really not a big deal. Wrong! Go read Proverbs 6. It's a big deal with God. He hates it. You know why God hates slander and defamation? You know why He hates it so much? Do you know how the world fell? Do you know how the world fell? Do you know what the adversary said to Adam and Eve? You know what, you know what he said to them? Did God really say that? He really called into question the goodness of God. He planted in the heart and mind of Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. He defamed God. He slandered God. The whole world fell. 
Many of you probably have never thought about that. What about Jesus Christ? What happened at His so-called trial? What happened at the so-called trial of Jesus Christ? What happened? Slander and defamation and false testimony. The world, the world fell. The Son of God is crucified. What's going on right now? What is the adversary doing right now? He's accusing who? You and me. Defamation and slander. God hates it. These are huge theological truths, beloved. The world fell. Satan slandered God. The world fell. Satan slandered Jesus Christ through his surrogates and Jesus ended up on the cross. Do you understand? <laughs> you understand? Uh, where God's coming from on this. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, James chapter 3, verse 6. By our speech, we can ruin the world and turn harmony into chaos. We can send the whole world up in smoke, smoke from the pit of hell. And we thought, well, that sounds like extreme hyperbole. And you remember the examples that we, we cited? Is it hyperbole? How did the Holocaust begin? It began on the tongue of whom? Adolf Hitler. It's how it began. Stalin killed millions. Mao killed millions. Pol Pot killed millions. It all started on the tongue. It started with the rhetoric. It's not hyperbole. James chapter 3, verse 6 is not hyperbole. So, just to visit the Proverbs quickly, Proverbs 6.19, talking about defamation and slander, it creates discord among the brethren. It destroys friendships, Proverbs 16.28. It leads to contention and conflict, Proverbs 26, 20. Your speech, your gossip, it's not a second tier sin. God hates it. God hates it, beloved. He hates it. We, we touched on this, and I'm just going to briefly remind you. Over in Romans chapter 1, where God is highlighting the the total depravity of man, and he, he talks about homosexuality, wickedness, greed, murder, strife, deceit, malice, arrogance, inventors of evil, and haters of God. Oh yes, gossips and slanderers. And we also talked about the fact that when Paul was warning, warning Timothy about the last day, 2 Timothy chapter 3, talking about the gross sins in the last days, he talked about lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, and oh yes, you guessed it, malicious gossips. God means for you to have a pure tongue. I know none of us do. <laughs> Things come off our tongue and... We're still dealing with that fallen sin nature and sometimes things come off our tongue and you can't bring them back, can you? But what is a Christian always ready to do? 
I should have never said that. Please forgive me. I've dishonored God, I've dishonored myself, and I've dishonored you in my speech. Please forgive me. It's a good, you know, for, in, in, in asking forgiveness, it's a good evangelism tool. <laughs> because then you get to tell them why you're asking for forgiveness. And you get to bring Jesus Christ into the equation, right? Uh, asking for forgiveness is a great evangelistic tool. Let me just read to you a couple of verses out of Ephesians 4. This is what God wants your tongue to be. Ephesians 4, 29-32, just some excerpts. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may, be, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Verse 11, what does it mean when he says, He who speaks against or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of it, but a judge of it. What is God saying to us here? Simply this, if you defame and condemn your brother, which the law forbids, you are showing your utter disregard for the law. You're putting yourself above the law. You are standing in judgment of the law. You say, well, I didn't mean to do that, Jim. Well, that's what you're doing by your actions when you disregard the Word of God. You're setting yourself up over the Word of God. I know better than you, Lord. I know better in this circumstance. You're setting yourself up as judge over the law, which de facto puts you in judgment over the law giver. That's what's being said here. By our very deeds, we slander and judge the Word of God. It's just sin. It's just sin. It's usurping the authority of God. So back to James 3.17. It's refusing to live by the wisdom from above. Back to James 4.7 and 10. It's refusing to submit and humble ourselves before God. So sin, the sin of defamation and slander reveals our hearts. What we really think of others, what we really think of the law, and most importantly, what we truly think about God. Verse 12 again, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Sin is always an attempt to dethrone God. And James is reminding us that there are no vacancies in the Trinity. There are no <laughs> he's God and you're not. I know I say it a lot. In essence, James is saying, who do you think you are judging your neighbor? Who do you think you are judging your neighbor? You love your neighbor. You go and you talk to your neighbor about a sin that you've become aware of in their life. You love them enough to do that. I know that most people don't love others enough to do that anymore, but a real Christian will do it. They'll love you enough to call your sin to your attention. But we don't judge anybody. That's God's business. That is God's business. So who do you think you are slandering and judging the law of God? The Bible says there's only one lawgiver and one judge, and you're not Him. 
you're not him. So that brings me back full circle, bam, to the banana. Okay? So I'm back at the banana. Who knows what a theophany is? Who knows what a theophany is? Nobody knows what a theophany is? Okay. A theophany is a proper manifestation of God. So if you're reading along in the Scripture and you're like, God comes to Abraham and God comes to Gideon. Sometimes God just shows up. I believe uh, many conservative theologians will say, well, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. That's Jesus appearing to Gideon. That's Jesus appearing to, to Abraham. So that's what a theophany is. So a banana is not a proper theophany, right? But because I, I have a logical mind and a rational mind, which, oh, by the way, is the gift of God, I realize that there must be a sufficient first cause for the banana. There must be. There has to be. Bananas don't just happen. And they don't just taste as good. And they're not, just, they're not packaged so ingeniously. Right? I mean, you, I, could spend, I could spend another 30, 40 minutes just talking about bananas. Nobody wants that to happen. I get that. But this is what happens when I eat a banana. The naturalist's answer here is wholly unsatisfactory. Nobody plus nothing equals a breathtakingly beautiful and infinitely complex cosmos. So, the banana is not a theophany. It's not a physical manifestation of God, but it demands God. So, I'll paraphrase Psalm 19, 1 and 2 for you. The banana is telling of the glory of God. It is declaring the works of His hands. The banana is a non-audible lecture on the logical necessity of a Creator. Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man is without excuse. It's what James is saying. There's one awesome God. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the lawgiver. He is the Savior. He is the judge. All other so-called gods are wannabes. They're pretenders. They're empty suits. As my preaching professor used to say, they're empty suits. The 300 million gods of, of the Hindus, empty suits. Allah is an empty suit. You name it. Only Jehovah God is God. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He is the one who saves. And what I'm trying to communicate to you tonight, because I've been convicted this week, incarnate this wisdom that comes down from God. This healthy fear of God. He cannot not be there. I don't care what the naturalist says. They are fools. They've become futile in their speculations. He cannot not be there. He is there. Not only that, He is a Savior. One quick verse. First let me say, there is no God like Me, God says. No one, uh, the, there is no God beside Me, He says. But I want to read Deuteronomy 32.39. God says, see now that I am He. There is no God beside Me. It is I who put to death. It is I who give life. 
It is I who wound and I who heal. There is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 45, 5 and 7. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord. I do these things. Jesus said, fear not those who can kill the body, but rather fear Him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm trying to say to you that there is one lawgiver, one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Him, I'm encouraging you and exhorting you tonight to run to Christ and be saved. Because apart from the cross, you are damned. You will be damned forever. I know that's hard. I know most Churches don't preach it anymore. It's just the truth. It's the truth of God. You must have this one. There are no others. There's one. You must have this one. Capital. Oh, you must have Him. You need Him above everything else. You need Him. You must have Him. Beloved, if you don't know Christ tonight, I encourage you to come to Jesus Christ. And with regard to our language, our speech, how we use our tongue, I'm going to exhort you like I did a few weeks ago and I'm done. I'm going to exhort you to speak gracious words and kind words and loving words and true words and holy words and edifying words, sensitive words, gentle words, comforting words, unselfish words, peaceful words. Words of blessing, words of humility, words of wisdom, words of thanksgiving. Guilt-removing words, sin-annihilating words, hell-crushing words. That's what a Christian uses his tongue to do. Some of you probably need to repent. Some of you have been using your tongue in an unworthy manner, and I'm just guessing. Maybe you're all innocent. I know I'm not. But I want to challenge you to repent, if you need to tonight, of how you use your tongue, what you're using your tongue for. Are you honoring God? Are you speaking the gospel? Are you healing the body? Are you loving?